The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space. Celebrating tenure through the community. Created by Carl Sinclair. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. A warm welcome. It looks like everyone has joined us today. And let uh, despite the wonderful sun that's out uh, there in Dublin and the cold weather. Um, a warm welcome to the fourth um, session for the Identity and Transformation Seminar for the postgraduate, postgraduates. Um, it was supposed to be held last term, but because of COVID, we pushed it back. And the subject of today's um, session will be embodied identities. And I think it's interesting to juxtapose it with the fact that we're in a virtual space on Zoom. So the speakers will present the concept of embodied identities, despite our seemingly disembodied um, sphere, and will highlight um, the body, the influences we perceive has of the way we perceive the world and how we understand and negotiate our identities in relation to gender or social norms or performances. So every panelist will have about eight minutes to speak and then we will continue to the next panelist and finish with a Q&A at the end. The early career researchers will start with their presentations and then we will have the staff members to follow. If you have questions, please put them into the Q&A and we will, uh, I will then read them out and ask the specific speakers. So the first talk will be presented by Nandini Gupta. She is a second year PhD in Peace Studies and an early, early career researcher at the Trinity Long Room Hub. She has been awarded the Andrew Green Scholarship by the Research Council of Ireland. She is also a research assistant at PAVE, a European research project. In her research, she looks at the role of women and politic identity and post-conflict reconstructions that is supposed to sustain and change in an inclusive manner. She will present on the wandering mistrels of hope. The floor is yours. Thank you, Elena, for the kind introduction. I'll now share my screen. Hi, hi all. Um, so basically, uh, my research is a comparative analysis between Northern Ireland and Kashmir conflict. But for this um, special, uh, for this seminar, I'm gonna speak on Kashmir and the role of women in um, the role of women in building peace in Kashmir, the grassroots movement. So the title of uh, my today's presentation and also the title of my research is the Wandering Minstrels of Hope. So just to start off with my presentation, I would like to start with a very famous quote of mine um, by Audre Lorde, uh, who is a, who's also a poet and a feminist activist in the US, uh, where she says that I'm not free until any woman is unfree, even when her shackles are very different from my own. Uh, and my research is also actually um, looking at the transversal politics of women 
where we acknowledge the grassroots struggle of every woman uh, uh, transcending the boundaries of caste, caste and religion. Uh, to start off, I would just like to uh, give a small um, uh, example of Kashmir and describe uh, the political scenario in Kashmir so that I will later on build up uh, my presentation on it. So uh, Kashmir has remained a very disputed territory between India and Pakistan. And each country has, uh, both India and Pakistan is trying to lay its position over Kashmir. Uh, there has been uh, no solution that's reached till now and uh, the militancy and terrorism is growing at a rampant uh, uh, stage in Kashmir. So uh, going back to the political background, um, briefly I'll just sketch over it. Uh, um, the, there was a division of India on the basis of religion and uh, Hindu, uh, Hindu people um, stayed with uh, India, whereas the Muslims went to Kashmir, uh, uh, sorry, went to Pakistan. Kashmir somehow got in that division a very special status of Article 370, uh, where it uh, got the military uh, power of India but it also had the access of its own autonomous identity where India could only manage its political affairs and foreign policy. Uh, but right now, even that status has been taken over by Kashmir. Uh, people are, are desperately wanting to have their own say whether they want to stay with India or Pakistan, but there has been no potential plebiscite happening in the last 50 years or so. Because of that, there has, like I mentioned, there has been uh, numerous examples of militancy and terrorism rising. Um, there have been arrests without warrants, shoot at sight. Till now, nearly 43,000 people have been killed. 10,000 people have been disappeared. And in the, the Indian government also launched uh, Armed Special Forces Act, which is a very brutal act by the Indian government, where um, the government is not accountable for any disappearance or any killing in the region because uh, the government has uh, termed Kashmir as a very uh, disturbed area. Uh, so, uh, and here, and at this stage is where my, my research is located. And I'm particularly looking at an organization called Associations of Parents of Disappeared People. Uh, so this uh, organization was started by an illiterate woman called Praveena Ahangar, uh, whose 18 year old son was uh, suddenly kidnapped, kidnapped and got disappeared. And uh, he, he never came back home. And it's, uh, it happened in 1994, uh, nearly 26 years. And from that time, she went stage to stage, uh, different places to find his whereabouts, but there has been no accountability either by the government or by the militants in that area. And when she was traveling, she realized that disappearance is a very important factor in Kashmir conflict. And how many people are suffering because of that? How many parents they do not know? Uh, and on that ground, she has now created uh, this organization uh, uh, where the collectively, this organization collectively protests at Pratap Park. Uh, you know, every Friday uh, of each month, they protest and kind of uh, want the government to give them accountability of their children, want to know about the whereabouts of their children. Um, so in terms of this theme of uh, identities and embodiment, I somehow feel that since Kashmir is a very illiterate woman from grassroots movement, um, her struggle can very, 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 we can very well relate it uh, to Judith Butler's idea of precarious identities, uh, where uh, the power structures, uh, the predominant power structures of nationalism and religion somehow bypass um, the vulnerable people and term them as powerless. 
but through this activism that we study and you know i'm doing a comparative analysis of between women's grassroots struggle very well it can be exemplified that how the precarious identities for these people became a co common ground to channelize common dissents to revolt against the power structures um, and i would just like to um, and uh, I just like to read what Pravina Ahangas one quoted in uh, in her interview that we are not alone and it feels good when people listen to you at such meetings we share our stories our grief and give each other courage. It is no longer a fight for my son, it is a fight for all the disappeared, they all are my son. So how uh, her single her single struggle, her single uh, grief uh, gave rise to such monumental um, protests uh, against the power structure. And you know, like um, Butler also says that um, in, in the world that we live in, the postmodern world we live in, the grievability is always controlled and monitored um, by, by the, the patriarchal nation, nation states. So uh, the, the, the struggle and by studying and researching on these grassroots movements, which I somehow feel uh, get lost um, in, in our very bigoted understanding of resistance, um, you know, how these women are, are telling us, you know, uh, that how important is interdependence, how important it is come out to collectively resist. Um, and um, also to explain it, uh, I would also like to explain it with one of my field trip that I did to Kashmir. In Kashmir, I saw that how um, there was another woman called Dusna. Uh, I went and saw her and uh, she's 70 years uh, 70 years, nearly 70 years now, and it's been uh, 30 years that she's also trying to find her son. And when I went inside her house, um, the personal anecdote of her story really touched me. And um, she, when I went there inside, it was freezingly cold, nearly minus 10 degrees. Um, and she kind of, and we, when, she, when she was telling me her story, the one thing that I noticed was that how she asked me, uh, not to tell the door closed. She said, don't close the door. I was feeling that, oh my God, it's so co cold. Why is she not letting me close the door? But she constantly insisted that please don't close the door. And later on, I came to know from her neighborhood and the people around her that she never, she never closes the door because that opening of door is the hope that her son is going to come back. So, you know, like, um, of course, um, in academia, we definitely we we, we resist and we you know we write about power struggles and we write about resistance. But when I actually went and saw such anecdotal um, presence of their resistance, uh, I kind of realized that how uh, these grassroots movements somehow get marginalized, uh, you know, and how important it is to recuperate them and to bring them to the to the front. And that's what that's what my research is aiming to do to recuperate Dusna struggle. Um, to recuperate Pravina Hangar and million other men and women, you know, who are struggling for their stories to be heard. Um, you know, her, her story has always stayed with me and it kind of also made me uh, relate uh, to, uh, there's a wonderful story, a short story by Franz Kafka, uh, Before the Law, where uh, the man is not, um, where there's a man, man is not able to go inside the law of door, law, inside, inside the law of door, he, he spends his own life, but he does not have the access to the door of law. Uh, and here is people like Dusna who do not need to, act, to, to go because she has tried all her life and she's not, she understands that the whole struggle, the whole regime is corrupted by power and she will never get access to the door, but she has her own door there and which she doesn't, no, nobody can close that door. So, you know, that was something very interesting as well. 
uh, I had the, this video to play, but I, I don't think this have time. This is the very powerful video by Pramina Ahangar when she got the Nobel Peace Prize. So on that note, I would just like to end my presentation by a very um, powerful uh, poem that Uzma Falak, uh, a Kashmiri poet, has written, where they tell that what they have is only memory, memory of their lost one, memory uh, of, uh, of the people who have disappeared, uh, they do not have um, they do not have any other means to protest but their memory becomes the power to protest and i just would like to read the last four lines where she says memory is the unsettling dust of our beings memory is the opposite of time an antonym of their preamble memory is a synonym of our history so thank you very much uh, Thank you very much, Nandini. And um, that was a beautiful presentation about, about I would say, disembodied um, human beings at one stage, uh, in one angle. And so please ask your question, pose your question in the Q&A section so that we can answer them at the end of all the presentations. The next presenter will be um, Orla Darling. Uh, he, she is a second year PhD in the School of English and is also currently based at the Long Room Hub and is founded by the Re Irish Research Council. She studies uh, contemporary Irish short fictions, uh, women's short fictions, and focuses on the themes of bodies, homes, histories, to analysis the relationships between short fiction and Irish society. Uh, the title of her talk is Contemporary Irish Short Fiction Embodied Belonging Politics. Orla, the, pl uh, the place is yours. Thanks so much, um, Elena, for that introduction. And uh, let me just get my PowerPoint up here. Um, and thanks so much to Nandini as well for that very um, moving presentation that she gave. Um, so thanks everyone for tuning in. As Elena said, I'm Orla and I'm researching contemporary Irish women's short fiction under uh, various themes. Um, but I suppose relating to the, ident uh, the embodied identities sort of strain here, um, I'm looking at the performance of embodied social norms around issues like pregnancy and particularly abortion um, in an Irish context. So I suppose my work comes from the background that the female body has long been a site of national contestation in Ireland um, with issues of bodily autonomy and citizenship frequently intersecting over the course of Irish history. Um, and of course, this battle became highly visible um, in the 2018 referendum to repeal the Eighth Amendment, which had banned abortion and provision in Ireland uh, since 1983. So Irish culture is really imbued with nostalgic ideas like Mother Ireland um, with the maternal body often appropriated by patriarchal nationalism um, and womanhood and maternity conflated and seen as one and the same sort of thing. So this, I suppose, comes from a context where the modern Irish nation wanted a nationalist masculine identity um, in contrast to the so-called feminized uh, colonized Ireland under British rule. And so women came to symbolize Irish moral otherness and they really embodied why Ireland deserved its own national status as distinct from Britain. And in this model of nationalism, um, in Nero Yuval Davis's words, women in their proper behavior embody the line which signifies the collectivity's boundaries. And really um, the Eighth Amendment epitomized this view 
in effect associating women purely with the bodily function of reproduction and alienating them from citizenship and public participation through enacting law on their bodies. So I suppose I'm looking at this idea through a short fiction by Irish women. And one example of this alienation from civic agency is Lucy Caldwell's short story, um, May Day. And May Day uh, follows a young woman in Northern Ireland as she takes illegal abortion pills, which she gets on the internet. And significantly, the protagonist of the story erases her web history after ordering the pills. And this sort of highlights a female experience, which fails to the purity expected of Irish women is whitewashed um, from a national history or collective history. And so the fact that the protagonist is unnamed um, sort of allows her to represent countless Irish women um, who are also unnamed in similar situations, um, all of whom are erased from official historical narratives. And so when the protagonist of May Day says nothing feels neutral anymore, she illustrates the way in which she is fully associated with her body as a reproductive vessel and thereby alienated from citizenship. So because her body, she is a body representing the state and nation and ideas of Irishness, she is unable to call May Day. Um, instead, she is silenced and marginalized through her association with only her body. And she notes her jaw aches with the effort of holding her mouth and tongue still. So this sort of relationship between speech and the body and how she's alienated from both really. So in the lead up to the vote itself in May 2018, there were several really horrible cases reported on in, in national media, um, including one really terrible one where a pregnant woman had suffered um, brainstem death and was being kept on life support in an Irish hospital uh, due to the continued presence of a fetal heartbeat. So this headline raised a lot of issues regarding the workability of the Eighth Amendment for doctors, um, and particularly the promise of the amendment to protect the life of the fetus as far as is practicable. Um, so in this idea of practicability, I suppose, the maternal body really becomes a site on which to practice um, the law and the nation's will through democracy. But obviously, if a woman is a site of democracy or the object of democracy, her own role as a participant is, is sort of compromised and undermined. And this, um, for me, ties into dominant strains of Western philosophy, where woman was historically seen as unworthy of the same civic rights as man. Um, and Valerie Bresnahan um, puts it this way. So underlying debates of womanhood, there is a deep unconscious consensus which presents the feminine as antithetical to qualities of citizenship, humanity, reason, culture, and civilization itself. So if the ability to make judgments and decisions denotes human development in a free society, denying women choices denies their very humanity. And this idea is a central concern of June Caldwell's story, Somat, which deals with this case of brainstem death. And as the mother in the story is kept on life support, um, she becomes a literal state-controlled incubator. And in Somat, just as in the real life case, um, the life support can't be turned off because the woman is not treated as a citizen with rights because of the steady whoosh of citizen inside her body. So instead, she's represented as a citizen producing machine. And this really speaks to the idea of endocolonization, which is described by Angela Martin as the penetration of bodies by state apparatuses of power. 
And another aspect of this research is the way that women in Irish society performed pregnancy or were forced to perform pregnancy. For instance, in Somat, Caldwell is careful to emphasise that the woman was really looking forward to having um, her baby. And in the narrative surrounding abortion, it seemed that really only women who had suffered terribly um, would be considered eligible for um, abortion provision in Ireland. Um, and this sort of ties into ideas of Catholic fetishization of sac sacrificial um, maternity, like you know, the weeping Madonna, the Pieta, and the idea that mothers are meant to suffer and it's just part of their job. And I suppose this was sort of highlighted by different messages of um, the pro-choice campaign um, by various political parties. So if you look, for instance, at the Green Party poster, um, it focused on the fact that statistically everyone in Ireland knew or knows someone who had had an abortion. Um, and this poster features um, normal women who volunteered to be photographed. Um, and it has the slogan, your sister, your friend, your daughter. In a sense, this is trying to personalise the abstract woman who might avail of abortion. Um, and it asks the public to vote yes for and to trust the women that they know and that they love. Um, and in a similar sort of way, a personal testimony was used in the campaign to humanise women who had availed of terminations either through abortion pills or in the UK or elsewhere. And I suppose this is sort of an instance of, of bodily performance um, that's, that's really put onto women. So people like Jennifer Ryan had to come into the public arena and outline how her body, in her case, um, was crushing the fetus she was carrying. And she had to go on national television and talk about that uh, to almost justify abortion provision. Um, so shifting the status quo was only possible then through women's embodied narratives of abortion. Um, and this female performance of embodied public vulnerability foregrounds um, female corporeal openness to wounding and suffering. And there were, of course, alternative narratives. So the Together uh, for Yes campaign, um, which is the main campaign, was very wary of asking women to justify themselves or to sort of submit their pregnant bodies for national inspection. And their message emphasized a woman's right to experience abortion in private and without justification. So you can see that in the slogan here, sometimes a private matter needs public support. Um, so just to quickly wrap up, um, my work is looking into representations of pregnancy and abortion in Irish women's short fiction, among other things. And often this representation is characterized by tension between female association with embodiment and alienation from civic agency. And I focus here on how some Irish women's short fiction comments on the Eighth Amendment, but other writers I'm looking at address different aspects of embodiment. So just as a very quick indication, um, Mary Costello contemplates the legacy of unmarried mothers for adoptions and uh, mother and baby homes, which obviously is a big story in the news at the moment, Magdalene Laundries. Um, Claire Keegan writes about sexual abuse and other writers reflect um, sort of millennial uh, bodily ambivalence. So Lucy Sweeney Byrne and Nicole Flattery use the body to chart alienation in the context of global capitalism. Um, so it's quite exciting for me to see um, new female fiction engage with what was once um, and still is a very fraught topic in Irish culture, politics and um, society. So um, thank you for listening. Thanks Orla for this wonderful presentation and I think an important one at the moment in a lot of discourses that are going on in democracy. 
Um, and it also, I think for me, nicely connects to the one from Nandini with the question of motherhood and the position within a democracy and a society. On that note, I want to introduce Morgan Waite. She is a fourth year PhD student at the School of History and Hu Humanities. And she's writing her thesis, um, An Unspoken Power, Woman and Irish Television between 1958 and 73 to explore how women um, have been um, presented and shaped by the Irish television in the long 1960s. Uh, she's also an early career researcher at the Trinity Long Room Hub, and she will speak on I know what I'd say to Telepis, Irene, if I could catch them by the ears. Monica Sheridan, Ireland's first celebrity chef. Uh, enjoy the time. <laughs> Thanks for that. Uh, yeah, Telepisarin is a is a is a mouthful. Let me just um, let me just share my screen really quickly. Okay. Cool. Hi everybody. Um. So yeah. So this is Monica Sheridan. From the mid-1950s into the early 1970s, Monica was a highly visible and much-loved figure across all forms of Irish media. She hosted a radio show called It's Fun to Cook between 1954 and 55. She wrote a regular column in the Irish Times throughout the 1950s and 60s. She wrote three cookbooks throughout this period. And most importantly to my own work on television, she was a presence on four different television programs between 1962 and 1970. Now, in this image, you see Sheridan the way that Telepi Sharon wanted you to. That is, here, standing in her kitchen, carefully checking the status of her latest dish. She is, by all appearances, an excellent representation of traditional Irish femininity. She, like most of Telefiche Aaron's early female stars, is couched within a familiar domestic role, that of the housewife in the kitchen. However, despite the station's desire to construct this image of Sheridan, she herself did not actually fit so neatly within this role. So what I want to discuss with you today is some of the ways in which Sheridan challenged the embodiment of femininity which Telefiche Aaron prescribed to her. Now, just to start off, I think it's important to communicate that Sheridan was considered throughout her career an irreverent figure. The way I'd really like to do this is to show you what I believe is the only footage left of Sheridan, but unfortunately that's about seven minutes long and I've only got about 10 here. Um, and sure, having to learn about a program you can't see will give you a pretty good idea of what it's like to work on the history of television anyway. I would, by the way, highly recommend that you watch this on your own if you get the chance. It's called Lousiest Turkey Ever. It's on the RT archive website and it is absolutely hilarious. Um, but anyway, I do want to briefly describe this clip to you because in it, Sheridan says the quote that is the title of this paper. I know what I'd say to Telefiche Aaron if I could catch them by the ears. And throughout the clip, which was filmed in 1987 as a sort of, sort of throwback, she rails against the Irish station. She, she insults an unnamed former RTE executive who she claims sacked her for licking her fingers. She complains, honestly, rightfully, about the weird purple turkey that RTE has given her to work with and just generally shows a complete lack of regard for the station. And while the people in the clip with her seem to write this off as the eccentricity of old age, I do think this is who Monica really was and how she really felt. This is, to be fair, the woman who once gave out to a man live on air for nonsensical beauty advice he was trying to give to Irish women. A woman who once wrote an article for the Irish Times called My Friend Fiddlefingers, where she talked about how much she loved shoplifting. A woman who, by all accounts, said whatever was on her mind whenever she got the chance. So I think this irreverence is important to keep in mind as we move on to discuss Sheridan's television career. So Sheridan got her start on a program called Invitation. 
The program ran for about six months in 1962 and was the creation of a short-lived women's programming department at Telfi Sharon. Sheridan made semi-regular appearances on the program and is here where she initially displayed her natural knack for television. One commentator praised Sheridan's presence on the program writing, invitation last night was saved from its usual deadness by the appearance of Monica Sheridan. The commentator sh praised Sheridan's authenticity in particular. He noted that she talked so naturally that no matter what may have gone wrong with the mayonnaise, it wouldn't worry us or her. And this authenticity was the crux of Sheridan's popularity. The popularity she garnered from her initial appearances on invitation eventually led to her next venture, Monica Sheridan's Kitchen. The program was a dedicated cookery show that featured Sheridan making various dishes, many of which would have been, a, would have been new to Irish audiences. It is, for instance, claimed, though I cannot confirm it, that Monica Sheridan's Kitchen was where the Irish public was first introduced to pizza. The program was meant to be interactive in that women were supposed to cook their evening meal with Monica. For this purpose, the major newspapers published the necessary ingredients for the night's recipe ahead of time. Monica Sheridan's Kitchen ran from October of 1963 until April of 1964. It was very popular, though it did draw dissatisfaction from some people. For instance, a man once wrote into the Evening Herald stating, on behalf of my starving and or undernourished children and myself, may I state that this unhappy condition in my household is directly due to Monica Sheridan's kitchen. He explained that he and his children arrived at the state because the lady of the house is televiewing at an hour when she should be preparing and serving our evening meal. The program initially ran for 15 minutes at a time and was eventually extended to 30 minutes at the express request of the Radio Air and Authority. This marked the only time that I know of where the authority actually discussed a women's program, and perhaps the last time that Sheridan was in such good graces with the authority. When Monica Sheridan's Kitchen ended, uh, Sheridan took up the cookery segment on Telefish Sheridan's newest women's program, Home for Tea. The program followed a standard magazine format with a number of different presenters who discussed various household tasks, such as DIY, knitting, shopping, and child rearing. The program was rarely the same from week to week, but Sheridan was a constant. In fact, even when Home for Tea went off the air for two weeks during the 1964 Tokyo Olympics, the show went on for Sheridan. In the first week of the Olympics, she prepared a dish with rice, which Telfish Aaron billed as a tie-in to the World Games. It was on Home for Tea where Sheridan ran into major controversy at the station. In 1965, Monica was briefly fired from the program due to a supposed conflict of interest. The incident centered around Sheridan's participation in Board B's Bring Home the Bacon campaign, this campaign was designed to encourage the consumption of pork in Ireland in order to raise revenue in the agricultural sector. Sheridan was asked to be a spokesperson for the campaign and agreed. Her work for it mainly involved giving lectures at various events and putting together pork-based recipes for publication and distribution in shops. Telefi Sheridan claimed that this represented a conflict of interest as Sheridan may have ended up using Irish pork products in her cookery segment. In response to this concern and Monica's refusal to step out of the campaign, the network fired her. Public backlash for the incident was swift and intense. Viewers sent dozens of letters and made hundreds of phone calls to Telfi Sharon calling for Sheridan's reinstatement. Letters were also sent into the major newspapers in support of Monica. And these can tell us a great deal about the incident. One woman from Dundalk wrote to the Irish press to note that she had written a complaint to the head of programs, Gunnar Ruckheimer, for depriving us women of one of Telfi Sharon's most attractive personalities. A group of housewives also came together to write in protest to the Evening Herald about Sheridan's dismissal. They wanted to tell TE that Monica will never be replaced and ended their letter with a simple call to action. We want Monica. 
Another woman wrote to the press to say that Home for Tea had lost its press personality when the network fired Sheridan and asked how crazy the television executives could be to do such a thing. The volume of letters to both the station and the press highlights Sheridan's wide appeal among Irish television viewers and especially female viewers. The television Aaron let Monica go despite this wide popularity is surprising given that at this point the station relied quite heavily on advertising revenue. Some were suspicious of Telefish Aaron's intentions in firing Sheridan. Monica herself said that she was furious over the matter and wondered why many other TE personalities can advertise quite freely, but they can discriminate against me when I'm not even advertising a branded product. She added that she had turned down the countless advertising offers in the past and had only accepted the board via spot because she felt it was in the national interest. Tom O'Day of the Irish Press wondered if Mrs. Sheridan, if Mrs. Sheridan's recent association with commerce was quite as unique as her ability to entertain, thus implying that he agreed with Monica that she was not the only television Aaron star to associate herself with advertising. No one within the press was willing to name the parties to whom they were referring, but television Sheridan's uh, actor, actors promoting uh, events and campaigns was not totally unheard of. Actors from the uh, Hallmark Girl soap opera, The Reardons, for instance, regularly made appearances at various events. Um, it's absolutely difficult to determine exactly why Sheridan was singled out specifically, though I do have some theories. One commentator, Jean Sheridan, claimed that Monica was dismissed because she committed the crime of being a woman and better than any two men you can think of at on TE. Her comments are not totally out of line in explaining Monica's treatment. It's clear that Sheridan's firing was somewhat outside the norm of the station's normal dealings with its talent. And Sharon's immense, immense popularity caused Telefish Aaron's actions further into question. Sheridan clearly broke the station's rules, but TE was not above bending rules for other actors on its payroll. It was also not outside of the station's norms to defend its talent in cases where they caused real controversies. Sheridan's treatment thus could be viewed as an attempt to constrain the conduct of a female presenter to place it more in line with their own vision of womanhood. Telefish Aaron's vision of womanhood, as presented through Home for Tea, dictated that a woman's place was squarely within the home. The program did not envision women working outside the home, and the middle-class ideal the program presented would not have necessitated a woman taking on outside work. Sheridan's position as a presenter, of course, meant that in reality she did already work. However, within the program, her construction as a housewife in her kitchen meant that the illusion of middle-class domesticity was retained. Her decision to publicly step outside of this framework represented a divergence from the image that the station wanted to portray and thus caused conflict. The incident with Monica Sheridan was resolved about two weeks after it started when Sheridan was reinstated under the condition that she could not promote pork on home for tea. One writer in the Nina Guardian commented, won't she have great fun at Christmas when she will be telling us all about how to manage the turkey without mentioning the ham. Um, and I do need to wrap up here. Um, so the main thing is that the, the incident stands out within the history of Telefish Aaron as perhaps the most direct example of the station trying to police its female presenters. Sheridan herself stands out as an interesting if some, and somewhat rare example of a woman on early Irish television that subverted the vision of femininity that the Irish station wanted her to embody. And I will leave you there. Thank you very much. Thank you, Morgan, very much for this example of one individual. We have seen so far like the talk about uh, more collaborative community and now we have an example of one person uh, that is at the center of a nation's um, interest. Um, so we will continue to the staff members who will be presenting. The first one is Lilith Acadia. She was last year um, at the Trinity Long Room Hub as a Marie Curie co-founded fellow and is currently in Taiwan 
at the University of Taiwan as a professor, assistant professor for literary theory. She has worked on literary and historical texts on questions of identity categories, um, like say same-sex relationships in the 20th century. Her talk today will be addressing new research on I try to pronounce it correctly, Chu Miao Jin um, and her novel Note of a Crocodile. Thank you, Elena. I hope I'm full screen now. So some of you have heard me present already on my project from the Trinity Longroom Hub, um, which was also identities and transformation in a different sense. And so I thought I would present today some new research. And I chose Chu Maojian because, and specifically this novel, Notes of a Crocodile, because it has this remarkable three-way transition. There is, as I indicate in the title, a identity in transformation. We're also at the site of democracy and transformation and the emergence of Taiwanese literature. So I wanted to touch on each of those to give you a sense, not really about the novel, which though it's a cult classic is probably not relevant to your research, but to talk a little bit about how these three can intersect, because I think it also speaks to the papers that we just heard before. Um, and I'll get into that in a little bit. So for context, Taiwan is a country. Um, it's not part of China. And from 1895 to 1945, it was occupied by the Japanese. At the end of World War II, there was a transition with a, um, a large movement of people. And I don't want to say that it's comparable to what was happening in Kashmir, but there were new political powers moving in and people moving out. And the large population shifts over um, 2 million new residents of Taiwan brought not only cultural changes, but also political changes. So the KMT, the Kuomintang, was the ruling party of the Republic of China on the mainland that was beaten by the communists. So they fled to Taiwan. And once in Taiwan, they instituted martial law. And there was a period from 1949 to 1987, which until recently was the longest period of martial law, when Taiwan lost its national identity because it became the Republic of China. And as you can see from this image, it was a time when there were political prisoners, there were cultural prisoners. And even today um, at my university, National Taiwan University, when they teach Chinese literature, they're teaching Taiwanese literature as well. There is this now subsumed history of literature that goes from the mainland into Taiwan under martial law and continues as though there were no Taiwanese literature prior to martial law nor in the underground Taiwanese literature when the KMT was in power. So this point, 1987, is a turning point, of course, around the world um, and the few years that follow. And this is where 
the author chooses to situate Notes of a Crocodile. So it was published in 1994, probably written around 1992, um, and set in the years prior. At this point of new democracy in Taiwan and the end of martial law, the final years of martial law had not been as strict as the beginning, so there were emergences of culture that were localized and not acceptable under martial law. One of the transformations is very closely tied to the other three talks, and that is the the Bildungsroman element, that this is a coming of age story. And part of that coming of age is defining the main character, Lazi, which um, I have read but haven't confirmed, then became a, uh, a word for lesbian in Taiwan. I haven't confirmed that though. So in this coming of age, she's defining not only for herself what it means to be a woman, and a woman who is resisting the womanhood before, but also this new Taiwanese womanhood. So her, her high school friendships and her university friendships are of course consistent with the Bildungsroman model, um, sexual exploration, but then in this is a new typology and a new transformation of what it means to become a young woman in Taiwan. And I just wanted to read you a short passage that is from part of her sexual exploration. And she's describing the, an interaction with a young man with whom she has a romantic relationship. And there's mixing in the scene of who is exactly whom, and uh, it's unclear who is speaking when there's a quotation. So every once in a while, he'd swivel his hips in a womanly manner or alternatively swing his dick around. But there was no more to his acting out than a desire to break the rules or put on displays of vulgarity. It seemed defensive as though he'd been hurt. And here's the quote. Whoa, you're not offended, are you? How about if the three of us agree to have post-gender relations? I'm done talking about it. In the end, all three of us have been seriously warped by gender labels. And the discussions of gender at the same time as the discussions of politics are a clear tie-in between the political transformations and the identity transformations. There are references to the character's involvement in the Wild Lily student movement. So we see them interacting with the emerging democracy and the student protests in response to old laws that have not been eliminated yet as part of the narrative of them coming into their new senses of self and not being willing to accept those roles of womanhood as we saw in Morgan's presentation, nor allow their bodies to be the vessels of the nation as we saw in Orla's presentation. And the student in Taiwan is the hope of the new nation. And yet they're pushing back against this. Uh, and the author, in fact, moves to France right after graduation. And there are hints of that in the novel. And so this rejection of both the embodied national identity and the nation itself is part of the narrative. And then we see, of course, the precarious identities from Nandini's talk that the young queer students are not clearly Taiwanese. 
they are not clearly women, or in that passage we saw not clearly men, and they're starting to understand what this can be in the new, new democracy. As a literary scholar, this is also interesting because this is literature and transformation. So I mentioned before how when literature is taught, even today, there's this consistent uh, understanding of Chinese literature from the mainland to Taiwan and continuing. And they're starting in this end of the 80s, early 90s time to identify a Taiwanese literature. And so it's an experimental novel and it's, um, and actually it's broken into books that are very reminiscent of Doris Lessing's Golden Notebook. And many of the publications are golden. And so I think it's almost an ironic reference that it's um, an experimental novel that is modernist referencing this novel that is definitely not modernist because it has all of these other modernist elements, um, magical realism of talking crocodiles, uh, lots of modernist film illusion, satire, a chronology. Um, it's just a very unusual book. And I wanted to have, Carlos, I can't see you and I wasn't watching the clock. I think I have a minute to read a little bit more. Um, just a short scene from when the crocodile is speaking, but it moves back and forth between first person and third person of the crocodile speaking. So I'll read the part where it's third person and I'll forgive me, skip around a little bit um, because there are illusions that are unnecessary for this. During the period when the crocodile lived in the tea house basement, it displayed an impressive adaptability. Again, this identity and transformation. Due to its highly regimented lifestyle, a reference to martial law, the crocodile didn't need an alarm clock to wake up in the morning, a chronology. Though the basement got little sunlight, the crocodile woke up at 6 a.m. like clockwork. It wore a fresh set of brown checked pajamas belonging to the proprietress's son. Some gender play because it's never clear what the gender of the crocodile is. Uh, the sleeves and pants were too short. In its hand was a stuffed crocodile it had made from a dozen handkerchiefs wound together and wrapped with one big handkerchief. Every night, the crocodile clung to its toy as it slept. So the crocodile who has this undefined role in the novel but reappears from the beginning to the end, it's creating a little crocodile of handkerchiefs just as the human pr protagonist is creating herself through the narrative. Um, and I'm still at the beginning of this project and I think there is so much that could interact, intersect with the other projects we're hearing about today. And of course, the identities and transformation themes. So thanks for having me and I look forward to the final talk. Thank you, Lilith, for this golden presentation and uh, a widening of, uh, of actors to the animal realm uh, going beyond human beings. Um, and for everyone who has a question, please pop them into the Q&A so that we can answer them. After the last presenter, uh, Miranda Faye Thomas. She is an assistant professor in drama Trinity, and she is a scholar for early English theater with an interest in text performance and adaptation focusing on gender and accessibility. Her first monograph is Shakespeare's Body Language, um, which came out last year, and she recently added the Tempest for Arden performance edition. 
he will give a talk on fluid identities, fitting and baptism in the merchant of Venice. Um, thanks so much and uh, I'm really excited to be talking today. Let me just um, share my screen so I can put up some slides uh, for you all. Uh, there we go. You should be able to see that okay? Got a thumbs up? People can see that? Perfect. Okay, great. Thank you. Um, so yes, uh, this paper is sort of short title, uh, fluid identities. It's research that's based off um, my first book, Shakespeare's Body Language, uh, which came out last year. Um, and my book looks at shaming gestures in Shakespeare's drama. Um, as a rough definition, I'd say that a shaming gesture is a physical action of nonverbal communication that's performed with the deliberate intention of inflicting humiliation on someone else. So for instance, at the beginning of Romeo and Juliet, you have a Capulet servant biting his thumb at the Montague servants in the first scene of that play. And when he does that, he's taunting them. He's making a vulgar insinuation with his hand in order to provoke them into a fight. So what I'd say is that Gestures are embodied social metaphors. They are the epitome of the political as the personal. Um, a gesture encapsulates a variety of understood meanings or intentions and the signs that they produce, they serve as a microcosm of the wider society which endowed them with original signification. Despite some notions of gesture being a universal language, the language of the body is inherently produced and explicated by the society in which it's found. So far from being universal, it's instead highly specific to the attentions in the performance of social relationships within a particular group of people at a particular point in history. To quote the historian Keith Thomas, who is not related to me, I promise, to interpret and account for a gesture is to unlock the whole social and cultural system of which it's part. Now, the nonverbal action I want to look at today is the act of spitting. Um, and I want to look at this in the context of uh, the Merchant of Venice, uh, because Shylock, the Jewish moneylender, is uh, treated very, very abysmally by his Venetian peers in Shakespeare's play. Uh, for those of you who don't know the play, uh, Shylock is a moneylender who lends money to Antonio, who needs to help out uh, a friend of his. They agree that if Antonio can't pay back the money, then Shylock can cut a pound of flesh from his body. Lo and behold, Antonio can't pay it back and Shylock nearly gets his pound of flesh. But when the case goes to trial to be contested, the court decides in Antonio's favor and Shylock's punishment is to be converted from Judaism to Christianity. Spoiler alert, I should have said. Uh, <laughs> I've just ruined the end. Of a, of, of a play there. Sorry about that. Um, so I want to turn now to uh, Shylock's um, speech in Act 1, Scene 3. Um, it contains some of the most poignant evidence of how he's shamed for his religion within Venetian society. Um, and being spat upon is a key example. Um, so here we have uh, his lines here. I've, I've mainly put the, the three instances where um, he refers to being spat upon in red, uh, for instance, uh, you call me misbeliever, cutthroat dog, and spit upon my Jewish gabardine, and all for use of that which is mine own. Well then, it now appears you need my help. Go to, then, you come to me and you say, Shylock, we would have monies. You say so. You that did void your room upon my beard and put me as you spurn a stranger cur over your threshold. Um, 
he continues um, imagining uh, how people are asking him something of him uh, and then being uh, continued to be uh, shamed in such in such a continuous way. Uh, should I not say hath a dog money? Is it possible a cur can lend 3000 ducats? Or shall I bend low and in a bondman's key with bated breath and whispering humbleness say this, fair sir, you spat on me last Wednesday last. You spurned me such a day. Another time you called me dog. And for these courtesies, I'll lend you thus much money. So in the space of 20 lines, Charlotte's referring uh, three separate times to being spat upon. Um, his Jewish gabardine, a marker obviously of religious difference, is singled out as being an object for shame, uh, itself it being spat upon. So Shylock's um, adversaries perform the act of spitting on a misbeliever to mark him out as being physically as well as spiritually distinct. Um, we should note as well that Antonio's action of spitting at Shylock's beard may be related to the beard's status as a symbol of traditional masculinity, which Antonio wishes to negate through spitting to mark Shylock out as a quote unquote feminized body in need of taming. A further thing we might want to note is that it was widely believed in the Renaissance period that Jewish men menstruated, that they bled once a month, and that that was part of their curse for um, killing the Son of God. So in the act of spitting, Sherlock is being marked out as unclean, as other, and indeed as potentially uh, female. So I think that spitting embodies, evokes, and perpetuates feelings of disgust felt for bodies that are considered other. It's an act that is performed in order to mark out someone perceived as being different, as being physically or even morally. Um, now, at this point, I think it's really worth remembering that the shaming of Jesus uh, on the way to his crucifixion is undoubtedly the most noteworthy cultural instance of spitting uh, that would have been known in Renaissance society. Um, for instance, you know, the Gospel of Mark says of Christ's fate uh, at the hands of the Jews, and they shall mock him and scourge him and spit upon him and kill him, but the third day he shall rise again. And this is, um, this particular instance of spitting at Christ uh, has a very strong visual uh, cultural, visual cultural tradition as well. Um, I've found three examples uh, where you can actually see uh, the spit uh, in these in these moments. Um, so here we've got uh, Meister von Meschkirch's blindfolded barefoot Jesus. Um, I've just cropped it in as a detail here so you can see particularly the, the image. Um, you've got on the left um, that man with the red hair. He's grabbing Christ's head to prevent him from turning away as he spits. On the right, we've got a kneeling man who's sticking his fingers down his throat in order to retch up a rather impressive projectile of spittle. Um, um, I'm glad that this isn't a lunchtime seminar. Sorry about this. Um, this next image is um, Johann Koerbecker's uh, Marienfelder Altar, which translates as the mocking of Christ. Um, again, you can see that those trying to intimidate Jesus are moving closer to his face in order to spit at him. Um, note in particular the man in the green gown on the on the right hand side of, of the painting. Uh, this, however, doesn't seem to tarnish uh, Christ's halo at all, which is, is still there. Um, one more less detailed image in this third picture, and this is by an unknown 15th century artist. Uh, again, Jesus is blindfolded and there's a man on the left aiming what, what appears to be an entire mouthful of, of spittle um, onto Christ's beard. Now, what I think is crucial here is the Christian association of water with transformation. Um, 
there's an interesting sermon by uh, the Renaissance preacher Thomas Adams, um, who wrote a, a sermon upon the passion and he equates spitting and expiating our sins upon Christ with the purging rites of baptism and the embracing of the Holy Spirit by the soul. So he writes of Jesus that his face was besmeared with spittle because we had spit impudent blasphemies against heaven. He would be polluted with their spittle that he might wash us. I think there's a certain um, fluidity, if you'll pardon the pun, between the hawking of the spittle and the waters of baptism. It's as if they're a part of an exchange of identities where an unholy liquid, the spit, is swapped with a holy one, the waters of baptism, the waters of baptism um, thus transforming a sinful soul into one that's blessed. So baptism is seen as a symbol of the passion of the Christ, um, as is implied by uh, Romans chapter 6, know ye not that all we which have been baptized into Jesus Christ have been baptized into his death. So the passion and the rites of baptism are ritually linked in the Christian cycle of death and rebirth with the sins of the world represented by the shameful blasphemies being spat upon Christ, being cleansed by the holy water of sanctification. So it's my contention that when Shylock is spat upon in the early scenes of Merchant of Venice. This is foreshadowing his eventual conversion to Christianity. There's even a line uh, later on uh, in the scene that I quoted earlier where one of the other Christians says, the Hebrew will turn Christian, he grows kind. Um, the Merchant of Venice reveals how the biblical narrative of religious persecution is being reversed. Since the Jews spat upon Jesus during the Passion of Christ, the Christians must now spit upon the Jews in the Venice in which the play is set. The baptism of Shylock at the end of the play, which will convert him into Christianity, is worse than all the spit that Antonio can hurl at him. Um, but both, marks, uh, both acts mark him out as, in Foucault's terms, herald of his own condemnation. In being cleansed of his Jewishness through the act of conversion, he's being tarnished by Christianity, his identity forever tainted by the water of his enemies that can't be washed away. Um, I want to say that um, in terms of performance of this play, um, there's a really intriguing case in the fact that when characters, sorry, actors who have played the character of Shylock, um, they've often talked about their own isolation from the cast when they've played this role, as if the enactment of the drama spills over into reality. So for instance, uh, Patrick Stewart took the role in 1963, in 1978, and in 2011. And he claims that, and I'm quoting here, one thing that's been the same in every experience is that somehow in the company of actors, you find yourself being treated as an outsider. I've never been teased and made fun of more than I have on those occasions people gang up on you when you play Shylock. And I'm just really interested in that idea and how I think that links really to the seminar of identities in transformation. It's not that Shylock himself has his identity transformed. It's as if playing that role, the shame sticks onto you somehow from the rehearsal room to the stage. Um, and I'm really interested by how the embodiment in being that uh, figure uh, who is exposed to such hatred, how that spills over into reality as well. Um, and I'll stop there. Uh, thank you very much. I'll just stop sharing my slides as well. Thank you very much for this really nice presentation. And you almost answered my first question about the performance and how it ties into back to the theater. But mm. before we go, go back to you, for everyone who has a question, please, 
share them on the Q&I section. Um, I also invite the panelists to ask questions. But we have one question from Shaz, and she's asking about the Kashmir conflict. And so I'm interested to know um, if Nadini has um, identified any ways in which Kashmir women have embodied the conflict and how this may have altered their relationship with their society in general and with the men in their society. Thank you, thank you for the question. Um, of course, um, I think uh, women um, and especially the APTP community and the people associated, associated with it have both embodied the conflict and also transformed the conflict because this initiative in Kashmir, which is, I said, is the most militarized zone in the world where militancy and terrorism are at rise. It's a non-violent conflict and they seriously condemn violence. So uh, they have totally, totally, totally radicalized the conflict by bringing the youth uh, in, in the nexus of non-violent um, uh, protests rather than going towards militancy and taking up arms against the state. So in that sense, I think it has transformed the conflict um, in, 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 a, in a great sense. And um, regarding a question of uh, importing the conflict, it. Um, I'll, I'll explain it with another narrative uh, of mine, my field trip when I did there. I remember I was um, there during the protest that I mentioned, the monthly protest that they do. And uh, I went there and I started seeing that how during that conflict, those women started singing wedding songs. And I was really confused that why have they started singing wedding songs? We are here protesting something very political. And after a few days, I also attended a wedding there, which was happening. And there they started mourning. So they started mourning. And I was, uh, just to explain, and that time I, I, I realized that the conflict and the protests is very much an intimate part of their life. It's not something that you can segregate, that they're sitting inside the house and now they're going out on the student protesting. Their whole life has become a protest in itself. And that's the embodiment of, of the conflict in their life. That much how much they're embodied in the conflict. And they are to continuously transforming it as well. And in regards to your question with men, APDP was actually co-founded co by Praviza, uh, Praveen Amrose, uh, who, who, is, who has also now created a civil society organization in Kashmir. Uh, and APDP has nearly 45% men in it. So I think um, it's more like a very um, holistic vision that you know this organization creates where they're not segregating people in terms of gender. Um, it was, of course, created by a mother, so that the element of motherhood is very much there. But uh, men are also uh, there in the protests. Um, there are collab international collaboration as well. Apart from protests, they have 10, 20 collaborations with the UN. Um, there are activists coming, academics coming and studying it. So it, it's a very collaborative kind of a movement in, in, involving everybody, irrespective of their gender, caste, religion, nationality. So very transversal. Thank you very much, Nandini. Um, does anyone from the panelists have questions? Floor is yours, otherwise I have some, but I want to give the chance for everyone to ask questions. Not only I, have, I have a question yeah, um, for, for Morgan. It's, it's a bit of a silly question, but I'm just like, I was really fascinated by this idea of Monica Sheridan using a platform that Tanafi Sharon 
gave to her to give out about Telefiche and I just think that's hilarious and I was wondering like do you have any sense of how that was um received by the public like what was she loved by the public because she was seen as a as a comic figure or you know what why did the public like her I suppose is what I'm asking yeah that's a great question and like it is it is hilarious like objectively um but I think I think there is this sort of sense that people liked Monica Sheridan because she seemed authentic and I think one of the reasons that she seemed authentic is because she was happy enough to say my employer is bad and I don't agree with them um and she also, you know, she had like, you know, everyone talks about how she had like this like very sort of you know, you know, sort of normal non-RT accent. And like she just had this like real like, you know, air of being like a real person. And I think that sort of her constantly giving out about the network kind of contributed to that, if that makes sense. That's my answer. Thank you. Does that answer your question? I hope so. Then we, yeah. have, a, <laughs> then we have a question from Carlos. Please go ahead. Uh, yeah, hi. Um, I'm going to leave my camera off just because um, I'm trying to uh, not overload my computer at the moment. Um, but I just I, I, as I was listening, uh, especially to the last presentation about uh, shame and gestures of shame, I was thinking also uh, about Morgan's presentation, Orla's presentation, and how shame might play a role in some of the issues you guys talked about uh, with Sheridan kind of, because with with, with um, Dr. Thomas talking about how shame was kind of linked in with the, the fact that um, Shylock was a Jew and then Jew, Judaism was also linked in with femininity. I just thought it was interesting that there was, there was this kind of link between shame and, and, and femininity. And I'm mm -hmm. just wondering if, for example, like for Sheridan, that didn't seem to play a role. And I wonder if that was kind of a part of her allure or a part of the, the reason why she was such a memorable figure. Um, and then with you know with with the, the the idea of abortion as well you know shame has traditionally played a role in that as well and I'm just wondering if if that's something you also consider Orla I don't know if I phrased that right but just I was thinking about those um, those links that I I was I heard that's my question kind of if there's anything there that you'd like to speak on. Yeah, I think I think that's like absolutely right. The idea. I mean, they're they're sort of, I suppose, um, just thinking about you know coming up to the referendum when there was posters all over Dublin and they were citing different numbers of women who had availed of abortion uh, since 1980 and and sort of the idea that um, these were all statistics, but but there was a lot of silence um, surrounding the sort of personal stories of abortion until there was a critical mass, I suppose. So people feeling that they had to be quiet, which ties into the broader stigmatization, I think, of, of um, female sexuality in Ireland that we see with, you know, things like Magdalene Laundries and mother, uh, mother and baby homes. And one of the sort of striking moments in the in the lead up to the referendum was um, the then Minister for Health, Simon Harris, sort of breaking down the statistics per county in Ireland of the number of women who had traveled, you know, in the last year to the UK. And um, though it's not, it, it's it's sort of, I, I suppose I'm a bit um, ambivalent about how I feel because it's sort of, again, like this, this male um, sort of political narrative using women's body as fodder sort of thing for their political gain, possibly. But it is definitely, um, 
part of this destigmatizing process and maybe trying to lessen the shame that is associated with um you know maternity and um, termination of pregnancy so yeah i think it's a really apt um point to make yeah go ahead oh sorry no just in just in terms of the uh the shame thing in terms of sheridan it's just uh yeah, she was, uh, you know, unabashedly unashamed about pretty much everything. And I do think, um, you know, it did, you know, speak to her sort of wider appeal. I think if you're looking at Ireland in the 50s, 60s and 70s, and you're looking at, you know, like the way that women experience things, like you are, it very much was a culture shame. So I think like, and I guess this is, you know, more opinion than anything, but I do think seeing a woman go about her life in this like very unashamed way was probably actually like relatively powerful. Um, and I think probably did, you know, contribute to her appeal among Irish women. So that's my answer. If I could just um, quickly kind of come in to sort of speak to some of the ideas about shame and gender, uh, because that's really the kind of the, the, the crux of a lot of my work, actually. Um, I'm kind of, I, I sort of, I keep coming back to the idea that I think the idea of gender itself is a bit of a trap. Um, I keep kind of thinking about how, um, the first thing that you ever learn about a human being, you know, when when a baby is born, the first question that's asked is, is it a boy or a girl? And as soon as you ask that question, you've opened up a potential uh, doorway. Um, you're handed this kind of script of, okay, if you're a boy, you do this. If you're a girl, you do that. And you're judged from deviations to that script. Um, you're judged if your performance doesn't match up to the expectations of what you should do in that role. Um, I'm not saying this is a good thing. I think it's a terrible thing. But I think that the idea that you know you can be you and, and people are frequently shamed for not uh, matching up to the gender they're supposed to be is something that we're seeing all the time. Um, uh, even you know in the idea of you know uh, the sort of the transgender community, the politics of passing, whether or not you pass as a particular gender, um, again is in a sense kind of reinforcing this kind of gender normativity of you have to look a certain way, you have to kind of achieve femininity or achieve masculinity. Um, so I think shame is a huge part of the way that um, that's quite an abstract way of thinking about it, um, but um, I hope it ties into some of the the other arguments and comments. Um, before we have a question from Nandini, I would rephrase this question a bit and ask Lilith what her position on that is, um, on the question of shame, of gender identity, perhaps, if that's also a subject in her research, or it, perhaps it's absent. Oh, absolutely. And one of the parts that I left out is that this book is also about mental health and the gender orientation, sexual orientation is a large part of that. The author studied psychology and was struggling with her own mental health issues. In fact, um, a few years after the, two years after the novel was published, she committed suicide by stabbing herself with a kitchen knife. Uh, and what more quintessentially feminine object could she have chosen than a kitchen knife? I think that throughout the novel, throughout her life, she's also very famous for her diaries, the idea of shame around her identities, not only gender, but also national um, and linguistic and uh, career are absolutely important. And 
Thinking about some of the other presentations, the role of post-colonial power transition seems to be one of the commonalities. And I think that Shane is often a holdover. So if we look at the abortion laws, those are British laws. If we look at some of the political dynamics in Kashmir, they are legacy of British colonialism. And now um, the violence also threat of neo-colonial colonialism. So the inherited shame is a very powerful way to maintain, maintain colonial power structures. So I think this is, I'm so glad that um, we're talking about shame is absolutely central. Nandini, you can please go ahead with your question. Yeah, I, I have a question for Lilith. Before that, since we're talking about shame, I there's a wonderful poem um, by Imtiaz Dharkar um, called Parda, and the opening lines has always stayed with me when whenever I read it and I've read it. And it says that uh, it says that one day they said she's old enough to learn some shame. She found out that it came quite naturally. So you know, like it's. It's it's like you know it and it, it links to literary theory, the um, Althusser's idea of ideological state apparatus and how we are interpolated into ideology, just like you know Dr. Thomas said about the moment we are born, we are interpolated that either you are a boy or a girl, and how then everything comes naturally. You don't have to teach, but as women we we imbibe it. And our whole life, I think, in academia is to de-learn that shame or to question it or to deconstruct it, you know, like, so just that. So uh, my question is uh, for Dr. Lilith, and I was really fascinated by, by your presentation, and especially when you talked about the crocodile that you ended up, you know, and ended it. And my question was that, um, do you think that in Taiwan literature, there's an emphasis on going beyond the Anthropocene? Because... In, 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 in Asian literature, um, I've, I've seen that, you know, there, there is a, there's a correspondence, correspondence between the human and the non-human world uh, and the harmony between that. So I don't know if you, if you ever looked at that and, um, you know, how animals, going back to animals is like uh, going beyond the Anthropocene. Thank you so much. Um, first, for the recommendation of the poem, and that I, I have I'm unfamiliar with the poem, but I'm really excited to read it because one of the themes of the vignettes where the crocodile is is the crocodile is always in Perda in one way or another, either locked away in a basement or literally veiled. So talking about wearing wearing the veil of a human skin, and so I think that that. Um, that symmetry might be really interesting. I'm going to read the poem. And also, so I'm, I'm not a specialist in Taiwanese literature at all. Um, and actually for this project, I've been asking my colleagues who are Taiwanese, like, what was it like to be at this university with the author? And what were the conversations um, in your literature classes? Now, um, some decades later, there's definitely a resurgence of the the animal character and that's in part because there's a concerted effort in Taiwan to reconnect with indigenous literature and indigenous um, mythology so I'm not sure that this author would have understood the transitions as part of an Anthropocene and um, it certainly isn't connected to the 
the current resurgence of non-human characters, but it's absolutely something that I will be thinking about this um, as I proceed, so thank you. Thank you so much for the question and the answers that have been really enlightening, also shedding new lights on the different topics and connecting them. But um, before I'm going to ask some questions, does anyone still have some pending um, answers? There is something they want to have answers to. Yes, please, Miranda. I have, a I have a question for Orla, actually, because I was really interested um, in the way that you were talking about the feminization of Ireland. Um, and I was really struck by the quotations from um, Mayday, the short story. Um, and I kind of wanted to ask about how it connects to your research more generally um, and what kind of literature you tend to look at. I'm interested. I was going to ask, are you exclusively looking at short stories uh, and their depiction of um, the gendered island um, or are you looking at prose in general or do you look at poetry as well? I'm interested in um, how you think the form reflects these themes essentially. Yeah that's that's really interesting. Um, I am I'm looking only at short fiction um, okay. and fiction collections so and mostly ones that are published in the last five years or so and um, so quite recent stuff um, and I suppose my, my main reason for that is um, that it, it's quite like it, it's quite a dominant um, form within Irish literature, but isn't necessarily um, you know as popular as novels and poetry as well known. Really, mm. and I'm looking at um, broadly sort of how it reflects different changes in Irish society in the time frame, and um, I sort of am interested in the short form as, as a fragmentary form and how. Right. Yeah. yeah, you know, how, how women might see themselves within Irish society historically. So that of um, continuity versus disruption. So, so that's one of one of things. But yeah, it's a really good question. And I, I'm definitely going to continue to grapple with it as I as I go along. So that's great. Thank you. Thanks. Any more question? Because then I'm gonna ask my question, which is a more broader one. But we have been talking about this, uh, the relationship between the individuals or the community and the nation state. And I was asking myself, it has there to be a momentum that a practice and identity is changing. So it has a long lasting effect for the democracy. So it's more democratic grassroots. Um, development or is it also possible to go the other way around from top and up, uh, top down? Um, so whoever has an answer or has a um, go for this kind of, I think, also um, acute problem, I would be interested to hear it. Could you just rephrase the latter half of that question about the, the top downwards and yeah, yeah thanks. I, I was asking my last, so we have been hearing about this grassroots movement, this individuals who have been shaping um, nation state national identities, but I think there are also ways or interests that you have coming from the top and saying, oh, women have to be more this or that from people of power or international um, organizations. And I am absolutely thinking that it's important that the it's a democratic process coming from the bottom and that it's more long lasting and sustainable than it's just an order that's coming from somewhere from a house that no one ever visited. 
so maybe i i can contribute what i think about it so i think of late there has been a lot of trend and i would say or a fad um in 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 the academics or in general in activist process is a top it's a bottom up because we have suddenly realized that you know oh of course uh, you know people at the bottom or you know at the grassroots are important and you need we need to you know the process towards like what you said democracy or towards egalitarianism is basically you know pushing the people from the bottom to up but i think that that's not sustainable we need both uh, we need bottom up and top to bottom as well because if you see the layering there everybody and the whole idea of saying bottom and top is very is, is again very riddled in power dynamics as well who would be defined people who have resources and privilege and position are considered to be at top and people who have vision but no resources people who have experience and feelings and compassion uh, but no academic degrees uh, or uh, you know no funding from the fancy institutions are considered to be the bottom so i think that's really problematic but going by what we think is top to bottom i think it's very important for grassroots level people people who actually experience the conflict uh, to to bring it to the foreground to tell them and it's very important for the people on the top that we say again in inverted commas who have the resources who have money who have you know the voice to reach out to other people Uh, to go and collaborate so i think collaboration is the only key uh, to bring out democracy to bridge the gap between the the very two distant different worlds and also not to be a spokesman like even i'm representing that's why i had video there i couldn't play because of time because i don't want to be a representative of pravina she herself is is her representation i'm just a voice who is you know maybe amplifying her voice and you know making sure that more people hear it but i don't want to be somebody who wants to represent her so i think that's also very problematic as well so yeah if no one else has a go on this question um i think that's a really nice yes lilith go ahead i would just agree and say that i think in several of our cases you can see that wonderful collaboration that nandini was referring to um in the taiwan context martial law came to an end because the head of the country who is also the son of the man who started martial law decided it was time to phase in democracy and um also the repeal of um the eighth amendment in ireland you can see that as a a community effort but it's also legal so very formally top down i think that that it's i want to agree and say yes we can see collaboration in many of these cases miranda you look like you had to go for it too <laughs> um yeah i think it can and does go in both directions up and uh, up and down the scale um i think primarily where you are on that scale falls down to the apparatus that you have in terms of your ability the the i suppose the the position that you're given in order to communicate how many people you can reach um i was going to say something and it's it's just completely it's just completely gone from me um it was something to do with yes um about both collective and individualism um Yeah, I'm just I'm I guess I'm just very very conscious of the fact that the American election is today. Sorry to remind people. Um 
And I guess I'm sort of thinking about the people at the very top who are doing a lot to control the discourse, to have shaped the narrative, um, and how that affects the people uh, further down the down the uh, down, down the food chain. But at the same time, it takes individual acts to follow through with hearing what you hear on Fox News um, and then to go out into the street. So I, we can't always separate individual responsibility, um, which isn't to say that <laughs> um, I want to kind of uh, say that, you know, these people can't help what they're doing because they're being, you know, um, manipulated by, by mass media. But there's a collaboration between both ends of the scale, I think, and that's what I think makes it so potentially dangerous, is that we now have this feedback loop of um, listening to populism and it kind of going back and forth. So we, anyway, I'm going to stop freaking myself out now. I just <laughs> realized I started going off on one thinking about the election. Uh, but yeah, I think it's a really complicated um, interaction of forces. I think that's even a better summary for the question of identity and embodiment. It's really complicated, it's connected, it is not easy to entangle. And I think the best way is also not to do it fully. So on that note, I will love to thank everyone who was speaking here today and contributed to this really nice discussion. And before I close the Zoom meeting, I want to um, make you aware of the last session of the postgraduate graduate seminar um, on the 1st of September. And it will be on narratives and performative scripts. And also the question about um, masculinity will might come up and um, the reflexivity of uh, science and what role science plays. And for those who don't, who want also more Zoom meetings today, there is and the postgraduate seminar um, for the English department, um, of which Orla is the co-venor, and it's right after the session um, from the Trinity Long Room Hub, and I'm sure she's happy to see The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and Thank print cultures, stamping provenance yeah. towards the history of the Time of Year Library. As well as being heard. The Hub is a space contemplating Ireland through the communities this created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Here's to the next 10 years.